to know that beneath his cross our unworthy souls were one. And Father, that we would gladly follow him because of that, not to pay him back, but because what he did changed us so and got us to know you so that we would gladly give our lives to follow you anywhere. And so in these moments, please, affirm that deeply within us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 10. Acts in chapter 10, please. I want to do something just a little bit different this morning. Uh, Almost always, I prefer that the scripture stands alone, that is, that I read the whole text. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy that we're to not forsake the public reading of the word, and so I don't like doing that, and I won't dismiss the public reading of the word this morning, but I want to annotate it as I go. It's a long passage. I want to read all of chapter 10 and a little bit of chapter 11. And I want us to make sure we understand it as we're reading. And I could read the whole thing and then go back through it again, but I just want to annotate it as I go. So hear the word of God and my comments. All right? Acts in chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was established, was built by Herod the Great, and was named after Augustus Caesar. It was the place from which Rome ruled the province of Judea. And so to a Jew, it was a hated place. You need to understand that. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known of the Italian uh, cohort. A centurion was a commander of a hundred. We get our word century, uh, centurion, same word. So he's a commander of a hundred men in this Italian-Roman cohort of of peacekeepers, if you will. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And when this passage says that he feared God, it's likely that he would be numbered among those Gentiles referred to as a God-fearer. That was a Gentile who hadn't come all the way into Judaism because he hadn't yet been circumcised or hadn't been circumcised, but he's one who would come to synagogue in this place, a synagogue, to worship, wouldn't be allowed in to, to, to mingle with all the Jewish uh, people at that synagogue, but, but a man who believed probably in the God of the Jew, in, in Yahweh, in Jehovah. Okay, So he's a God-fearer, and we can see how that played out in his life, in his giving, and his praying. Verse 3, about the ninth hour, that would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Now, he had the same response to this angel as almost everybody in the Bible has to angels. If you want to see an angel, understand that you will be scared to death when you see that angel. They don't look at all, it appears, like our medieval art depicts them or our our movies with this sort of uh, soft creature running around in a see-through sheet. They're terror-stricken people who see angels. 
And then he says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, this angel, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's an amazing statement. Because in the Old Testament, the memorial portion of an offering was that part of the offering that God referred to as a pleasing aroma to him. And so there's a sense in which this angel is saying to um, um, Cornelius, your prayers are like that. God has smelled them and they're pleasing to him. Verse 5, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, uh, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So that's the first day. So you get the picture. Cornelius, this Gentile who is very respectful of the Jewish religion, probably a worshiper of Jehovah, uh, who prays, and in some sense is pleasing to God, therefore. So we see God at work in his life. Uh, he receives this vision, and he says, go send for Peter. He's in Joppa. That's day one, verse nine. The next day, day two. As they were on their journey, that is, those that he had sent, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That would be about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, which to me is very comforting to know that Peter also was distracted by various fleshly things when he prayed. Um, became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, uh, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and they came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. I want you just to make note of that expression, because it's one of the strangest expressions in all of language. To say, by no means... And then to say to that per- to, and, and to refer to that person who said something to you and to whom you're denying, Lord, right? Half of that statement isn't true. He's either the Lord to whom you would say yes, or he's not the Lord to whom you would correct and say that isn't true. But we do it all the time. We just wanted to draw attention to how bizarre it really is. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, there were food laws, and God regulated uh, what the uh, ancient Israelites could eat, what type of meat, what type of birds, what type of fish even. Some were clean, some were unclean. And so Peter was thinking about that and said, I can't do that. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, comforting again, God gives him a vision, and he's confused. So if you want a vision from God, understand it might not be clear the first time you see it. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gates and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, "Uh, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, 
was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. Day one, Cornelius gets this vision. At day two, Peter gets this vision. The people show up to bring him to Cornelius' house, but it must be late, so they spend the night there. The next day was a travel day. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So you get this picture, a bunch of Jews, a bunch of Gentiles, going to the household of Cornelius. Verse 24, day four. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. So, relatively large group of people meeting there. Verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. We shouldn't think Cornelius to be strange here because this has been a strange couple of days for Cornelius. And so, he has no clue who this Peter is who's showing up. And so, so just flex with him for a minute. Uh, and then verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. That's an understatement. It was not only unlawful in their own law, but it was, it was just an abomination to them. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter's getting it. He's understanding the meaning of the vision that he had received. If you remember in the Old Testament, the food laws that existed, they didn't exist uh, because of nutrition. So if you think that by following the Old Testament law and the Old Testament food laws, you'll be healthier, that may or may not be true. Consult a nutritionist. Don't do it for, because the Bible puts it that way. Because if that's true, then when God ended the food laws, he's saying, I want the Old Testament people to be healthy and the New Testament people to be Twinkie addicts. All right? So he didn't change his nutritional standards from one to the other. It wasn't based on nutrition. In fact, Jesus, you might recall, keep your fingers in Acts 10, but in Mark in chapter 7, uh, Jesus has this exchange with some people. Uh, He says to them, uh, verse uh, verse 14 and he called to the people and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defiled him and when he had entered the house he left the people and, the, and his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters Uh, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then Mark, in parenthesis, puts, thus he declared all food clean. Now, that's in a parenthesis. Jesus didn't say that. And so as Mark's relating this story, writing it down, he's going, oh, yeah. Jesus agreed with God, who gave the vision to Peter. All foods were clean. And so he asked the question, why then these food laws in the Old Testament? Well, because God was doing something with ancient Israel. One of the things that he was doing with ancient Israel was keeping them separate from all the other nations. And so he gave them various cultural kinds of things that would keep them separate. They had to be careful on what kinds of clothing they matched and wore together, what kinds of fabric. Uh, They had to be careful about laws of mildew and other kinds of things like that. So they couldn't go into another person's house in another culture that had a little mildew in their shower. Um, 
And they have these food laws. This is, here's how you're going to eat. Because if you want to segregate people one from the other, give them different diets. Because we'd spend so much of our fellowshipping time as human beings eating together. And if you have completely different diets, it's really hard to connect culturally. And so the food laws existed. And he said, this is how you're going to eat. It's going to be different than everybody else. They're going to think you're really weird. And then the time comes for all of that to go because God is going to set it up as an illustration and say, now you're no longer going to be separate. Now there's no longer going to be Jew and Gentile. Now you're going to... And and so I've been setting you up for centuries for this moment. So you can see that now it's open to everyone. But the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not, condemn, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And so, oh, I'm sorry, I'm back in verse 15, but now verse 28. Um, Peter getting it, verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. And so now Peter is going to give him the message that God has sent him to give. First of all, that Jesus is the Lord of all. Not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. No partiality. There's only one Lord. You yourselves know what happened. And so he's saying something actually happened. A real event took place in history that you've heard about. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. So this Jesus is the one who's the Christ, the anointed one. The anointed means the Christ. Um, And and they would understand that that this anointing would happen to prophets and priests and kings by God, and now Jesus comes to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And they would know that only those cursed are hung on a tree. And so, so he, was, he was cursed. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. That is, Peter saying, we're not all that cool. It's not about us. It's about God. He's the one who revealed it to us. He's the one who chose us to see this appearance of Jesus. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify. Peter's saying, this is exactly what I'm doing. He's commanded us to do this. I get it now. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To whom all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the the emphasis of that sentence would be everyone. That is, everyone who believes. Jew, Gentile, whatever. 
Human being, everyone. This isn't just our thing. It's not restricted to us. It's for everyone. Verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. All right? This is relatively new stuff for them. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. In other words, exactly what happened to Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost was now taking place in Caesarea. And it was happening among Gentiles. And they too were extolling the great works of God, just like in Acts chapter 2, in tongues they had not learned. Languages they had not learned. Verse 46, For hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Could I, could you indulge this Presbyterian boy and to say that the implication there is that they were going to bring the water to them, not take them to the water? That's not a big deal, but I just think it's nice to say that he said, who can withhold water? Go get it, in other words, and bring it to them. And I think, pour it on their heads, but I think Peter was a Presbyterian. Um, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we had? That's the important part. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Verse chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had, uh, had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party. Now this is going to be a group of people we'll, we'll talk about today, but we'll talk about later. Who believe that for a Gentile to really become a Christian, to really walk with Christ, they would need to be circumcised and enter into Judaism really. Um, circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. I find that fascinating. They didn't say you baptized them. (laughs) He said you ate with them. I would think they'd be more upset if they're going to be upset that you baptized them. But see, it's a cultural thing. We understand we're not allowed to eat with them, period. No matter what else happens, we can't eat with these people. And so that's what was on their plate, so to speak. I mean, that, that, that's what was on their minds. You, how could you eat with them, Peter? Um, and then Peter explains the whole situation. And then in uh, verse, uh, verse 13, uh, he's explaining, Peter is, about the vision that Cornelius had received. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He'll declare to you a a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and he works back through all of that. And then verse 18. This is the conclusion of uh, of this circumcision party. And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. That leads to life. Okay, you get it? Do you see what's taking place here? Now, what do we, what do we get from this? What do we understand from this? Uh, just two very small points and then one larger point. Well, two small points of this. The first one is, it kind of helps us as we worry, as we read through the book of Acts, as to how, as, as to the sequence of events. That is, when are we baptized? When does the Holy Spirit come? When is all of that? And the truth of the matter is, uh, There's no good sequence as we've been reading through. In Acts 2, Peter says, repent, apply, believe. 
uh, you'll receive the Holy Spirit uh, and be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, we, we see in Samaria that they believe are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then here, the, the, Peter's preaching and the Holy Spirit falls on him and Peter goes, oh, we better baptize him. And so there isn't any good sequence. It's not about that. So we can just relax on all the sequence stuff. <laughs> the book of Acts isn't giving us a normative pattern on how all these little things cookie cutter us. Just, just relax on that. Don't get hung up on those things. Little point. Second little point, in a sense, little point. We need to understand, and we see it here so clearly, I think, that this mission is God's. And it really is God's. When we read Acts 1.8, when Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and my spirit will come upon you. Receive power to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If you just read that, you would get the impression, I think, that the book of Acts is going to be about how the apostles went about doing that. But as we read through it, we realize this is God going about doing that. And it's no more clear than here. God wants the Gentiles to get the gospel. This isn't undertaken by the initiative of any human being. God is saying, I want the gospel. The gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. I promised. I said they'd be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so how does he make that happen? He goes to a Gentile and says, get ready and send for someone to come to you and to, to give you the gospel. Uh, and you can tell he had already prepared Cornelius significantly. And he was very disposed by this point to the things of God. He feared God. He prayed. He didn't have all the truth because he didn't know about Jesus yet. But here he was, all prepped and ready to, to, to go, if you will. And, and he comes to Peter and says, Peter, I, I've got to tell you something about what I mean about the gospel going to the Gentiles. And I've been setting up your people for centuries with food, so I'm going to use that as my illustration, and I'm going to say, eat everything. Meaning, don't withhold your fellowship, don't withhold the gospel from anybody. Go to these Gentiles too. And you see how it's all orchestrated. And again, this isn't a normative pattern. We're not to sit till we get a vision. We're not to wait till we get a call from some unbeliever who wants to hear about Jesus. Because it happens in a variety of ways. If we work our way through the book of Acts, sometimes God sends some people out and says, go. Sometimes when they're going, he says, don't go that way, go this way. Sometimes persecution happens and they find themselves getting into new places and telling people about Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, this is about God. And you see, that gives me at least tremendous confidence. Oh yeah, God's at work in Lawrence, Kansas in the year 2007. I may not be able to see everything and, and I may be confused about, about how well all this is working out, but I trust that he really is at work so I can relax and be kingdom-minded, not worry about my kingdom, but his, because he's the one that's really orchestrating all of this and he will orchestrate all of this and we can, we can rest in that. Third point, big point. The gospel is for everybody. We cannot withhold it at all because our, of our particular uh, prejudices, our, our particular uh, kinds, of, kinds of ideas. O over and over again, the thing that comes through in this particular passage is, is frankly, 
that the gospel is for everybody. And this is not a new theological idea, or at least shouldn't be a new theological idea for Peter. The whole Bible has been setting this up. I turn quickly to Genesis and uh, chapter 12. In verse 1, this is God coming to this man, Abraham, who will become Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now it is true that God in some sense restricted his revelation to the people of Israel over those centuries, but always was the knowledge that it's through the descendants of Abraham, through at least one descendant of Abraham most particularly, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. Isaiah seemed to catch a glimpse of this in Isaiah and chapter 49. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of this. But in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, uh, Isaiah speaking of the servant of the Lord, understood to be the Messiah. Verse 6, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That was always the expectation. This was way bigger than Israel. It's always been way bigger than Israel. I took some time to get it out there, but that's God's deal, not ours. And, and so it, it really went. It was to go to the ends of the earth. And then when we come to Galatians and chapter 3, uh, we read this verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And let me ask you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6, this is what I'm after. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. See, all the way back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God had in mind not only those who would be of the faith of Abraham in Israel, but also those who would be the faith of Abraham among the Gentiles. It's always been true. This is not a new theological concept that, 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 that Peter is coming into. This is, this is the way it's always been. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Um, and then verse uh, 28 of that same chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It may well be that Acts chapter 10 is the pivot of the whole Bible. Because now 
the gospel, in a sense, has gone through ancient Israel, up through Christ, who's made it manifested and perfected it, if you will, achieved it. And then as it goes through, the gospel then goes through Jerusalem and then Samaria and so forth. And now finally, it's getting to the ends of the earth. You know, we celebrate Christmas and that's great. And we celebrate Easter and that's great. And we celebrate uh, uh, Ascension Day and that's great. And we celebrate Pentecost Day and that's great. We ought to celebrate Cornelius and his household day. Right? That should be on the church calendar. This is, this is momentous. This is the turning point in church history, if you will. And we need to see that we're part of that story. This isn't anything new. This is where God has been moving all the while. We're not an addition, an add-on to this other plan. All right? It's, it's all of us together. And it's always been in the mind of God, to be like this. Oh yes, the Gentiles are grafted on, if you will, as Paul says in the book of Romans. But again, not as an afterthought. It's the way it's always been conceived in the mind of God. And we need to, we need to understand that now. What that means for us is that we mustn't let any prejudice of ours, any cultural hang-up of ours, Keep us from sharing the gospel of Christ to anyone else. And the truth of the matter is, in the history of the church, and I say this not so much by way of criticism, just by way of confession. In the history of the church, we end up being groups of people who are rather homogeneous units. Look around. And the question for us is, what are the cultural barriers? Not so much theological. If I gave you a test, and I think sincerely, you would say that everyone should have the gospel. We should share the gospel with everyone. I, don't, I trust there's no one here who would say differently than that. We understand that. But the question is, even in inadvertent, maybe even unconscious kinds of ways, Simply in the living of our life and the structure of our communities and the structure of our, of our culture. Probably by Satan structuring our culture in a particular way. Let's face it. We share with people who are like us by and large. If you look at Gracie PC, I would say that we attract people to our church who are like us by and large. Uh, we attract people uh, who move into town who are evangelical people and they like our church. And we attract people who are in other evangelical churches who don't like their church at the moment as those evangelical churches attract our people just like when we don't like our church for the moment. Uh, so you got that little Wales Waldo thing going on all the time, um, uh, which is fine. And then um, we attract people who have some sort of Christian sense about them, some sort of what, what we would call a Christian memory. There's some sort of Christian idea in there. They may be going to a church where the gospel really isn't preached, but they're in church. Uh, and, and they may go, this isn't quite right. I'm, I'm reading the Bible. I'm listening to this. This isn't right. Let me go to a church that's consistent with what they say and what the Bible says. And so, so we attract that group of people. We attract some of our neighbors that we share Christ with that may not be churched at all in various ways. University students, some who are church, some not. They have a tendency to be just like us. And again, that's partially just because of where we find ourselves. I understand that. But we've got to be careful 
that we don't get so hung up in who we are culturally that we set up barriers to where we're not sharing the gospel with others. You see, they may not be beyond the reach of the gospel, other people who are different than us, but it may well be that they're beyond our reach for whatever reason, some of which may be our own prejudice that we might not even want to be in touch with. Because there's all kinds of things that keep us from each other. It may be ethnicity, be race. You say, oh, I'm not prejudiced, but are we? It might be economic, uh, uh, and that goes both ways. There are poor people who don't write like rich people because they're rich. There are rich people who don't like poor people because they're poor. And in fact, it may not even be a matter of sort of conscious like or not like, but it may just be a matter of, I, I'm just uncomfortable. I'd just rather not be in that setting. And then, but who's going to take the gospel to those people? We think somebody liked them, but maybe not. Peter was sitting around all day and going, hey, if the Gentiles are going to know about Jesus, then some Gentiles got to tell them that I'm not going to go because I'm hungry. And if I go to their house, I can't eat lunch. Okay? Could be educationally. Could be just in terms of the way people dress. Could be in terms of people's um, likings of piercing and body art or not. Could be odor. Could be what other cultural type music. Could be kinds of movies they see. It could be at a certain point in time their understanding of certain lifestyle issues like homosexuality or, or promiscuity or heterosexual sex outside of marriage or could be politics. Oh my gosh, they're a communist or they're a Democrat or they're a Republican or they're a whatever. I, I can't really go to them because whew, I, I, don't, I don't talk to those people. You know, what is it about us that keeps us from taking the gospel to others. Let me end with two quotes. One's a prayer. One's an admonition. The first is by a man named Alexander White, a dead guy, a Scotsman. Let me read the whole quote. Alexander White challenged his St. George's West congregation in Edinburgh on a particular Sunday evening when he preached on this text over 60 years ago, it would be in the, by this book standard, early 1900s. If you would take a four-cornered napkin when you go home and a Sabbath night pen and ink and write the names of nations and the churches and the denominations and the congregations and the ministers and the public men and the private citizens and the neighbors and the fellow worshipers, all the people you dislike and despise and do not and cannot and will not love. Heap up their names into your unclean napkin. Then look up and say, Not so, Lord. I neither can speak well, nor think well, nor hope well of these people. I can't do it, and I will not try. If you acted out and spoke out all the evil things that are in your heart in some such way as that, you would thus get a sight of yourselves that you would never forget. And for your reward, and there is no better reward. Like Peter, you would one day come to be able to say, Of truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation 
and church and denomination and party of men, God has them that fear him and that work righteousness and that are accepted of him. And then it would go up for a memorial before God, the complete change and noble alteration that had come to your mind and to your heart. What Reverend White is telling us is to take a dirty napkin and write all the people we'd never think of being around enough to where we'd actually tell them about Jesus. Crumple it up to God and say, I'm never going to talk to these people because I don't like them. And then he thinks what would happen is that you'll be so convicted saying that in the presence of God that a transformation will occur and that napkin will open and you'll find it clean. Same names. And then this, John Wesley. Famous prayer. I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to whatever thou wilt. Rank me with whomever thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which we have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Pray with me, Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. that you would reveal and expose all of our prejudices, all of our biases, all of our fears and anxieties when it comes to being around people, especially those who are quite different than we. I pray that you would, by your providence, give us opportunity. I pray that you, by your prodding, will move us to others. And that we won't allow cultural biases, generational biases, financial economic biases, educational biases, racial biases, to keep us from sharing Christ, will keep us from fellowshipping, being one. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our time together tonight, 6.30, and also of our Sunday school classes. It will begin in about 15 minutes. Uh, The response to the benediction is that Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. It speaks for itself. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that's at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.